Hi, welcome to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, community, and creativity. I'm your host, Janet McKenna Lowry. In the second half of the show, we'll be talking to Jessica Gifford of WellStudent.co, really interesting new organization dedicated to improving student mental health through building human connections. Ultimately, they've developed ways for anybody to develop communities and maintain bonds, have adult friendships, which, as many of us know, can be very, very difficult. We'll talk to her in the second half of the show. Till then, though, I want to talk about Rising Strong by Brene Brown. The book is about resilience. I've heard some pushback about resilience because it's easy to throw that back onto communities, particularly marginalized communities, in sort of that bootstrappy way or that kind of uh, virtue, for want of a better word, porn, where people are like, this person dragged themselves up and is now a successful CEO. Why aren't you more resilient? I think it's possible to misuse a lot of words in this world, and resilience is one of those things. And yet, and yet, and yet, mental health involves being able to weather the small things with resilience and not get in, caught up into like a major emotional hurricane every time. And resilience means being able to reach out for help and realize that you need it. So I'm not really anti it. Anyway, the real definitions. I think actually still serve the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties. Although I don't like the next one, which is toughness, because I don't, I I think that's a misread. It's interesting how that second part of the definition kind of creeps in there. I do love Brene Brown. I think her writing is super engaging and I agree with her on a lot of stuff. Uh, This book, I actually kept feeling like I had read it before, but I hadn't. And I suppose it makes sense. Her research is on shame. It does kind of feel sometimes with books like this, since that's the person's research, you're going to kind of see similar stuff in every book they make. It stands to reason. Anyway, but she's got other stuff and this one's fun. She defines grit and growth as different. Which is really true because failure you don't learn from isn't valuable. And with the recognition that failing as a concept is something that's been sort of embraced by tech culture, that failing is a necessary part of experiments. She said that, you know, there are conferences now on failure, but they don't really double down on the fact that you have to have that second piece of it. It's not just grit, keep doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. It's grit. Once you fail, try again and learn from what you did before. Interesting note, I think, especially as her work's gotten more popular. Badassery, which she defines not as not needing support, but being able to ask for it. Sort of a more nuanced, more updated version of it. And that if we are brave enough, we will fail and we will fall. And we have to learn to be okay with that vulnerability. And then once we learn to sort of fall into the service of being brave, so being brave intentionally, being vulnerable intentionally with others, it enriches our life so much we can't go back. And I think that's really true. You start not really wanting to live on a surface way. And I say that not because I'm any kind of master at this, but because I grew up very differently than how I live now. I grew up in a really reactive household, reactive family. I still 
am in contact with people who feel very reactive. And I was for a really long time, it used up a lot of my energy and a lot of my cognition. And now I don't do that very deliberately and I am happier. So do with that what you will. I do love the statement clearly and out there because this has always been one of my challenges. Comparative suffering is a fiction of fear and scarcity. And that is whether you do it to others in a self-righteous way or that which is always coming from an internal self-righteousness or whether you do it to yourself. Frankly, if you do it to others, you're doing it to yourself, which is saying to people, what do you have to complain about? This other person had it so much worse, or I had it so much worse, or what am I complaining about? They had it so much worse. There is no suffering Olympics. None of us know what other people have gone through or what their challenges are. If they're suffering, they're suffering, period. It's not up to us to diminish it or try to get involved in a power struggle. To do that just undermines our relationships with others. And it signals a gap in our relationship with ourselves. She also says you can't engineer a personal process into one size fits all, which is great in a book that otherwise would be considered self-help. It's true. All she can do is write about this stuff and whatever you pick up is what you're ready to pick up. It's always true. And that this, she considers this a spiritual practice, but not a religious one. I mean, yeah, I'd say yeah. So her main thing here is this narrative, qualitative kind of research and that it involves the stories we tell ourselves about not necessarily our own origins or big stories, but the little stories that when we have an immediate reaction to something, whether it's somebody cutting us off on the road or a loved one talking to us in a way that like brings up a lot of stuff. The very first thing to break this, to break ourselves of this habit is to realize we are telling ourselves a story and to out that transparently. So she has a story about just an example with her husband where they were swimming and she made a story of his reaction to her. She was, she was being vulnerable. She was, she thought she was connecting and his response was weird. So her story is that he's just changed the basis of this relationship and it's because of me getting older or she brought it back into like appearance. Maybe I don't look as good as I once did. He's, it's, he's not responding the right way. He had this whole story about fear and their kids. Like he was thinking about stuff on a totally different track. Neither of them can know that unless you a recognize that you're telling yourself a story and b out it and normalize that phrase when something weird happens normalize saying the story i'm telling myself is that our relationship's gotten nowhere that like we're back in our old patterns that you still treat me like i'm 15 those kinds of things and the other person can say well the story i'm telling myself is you don't respect my time or, or something like that. And then you're able to come to an understanding, but only by outing that. And you out that by things like asking questions, being curious. She does love her mnemonics. I love a good mnemonic. I really do. But she has like three R's and five R's and 
does out words and I kind of can't be having it. So, but reckoning, I'm okay with the word reckoning, walking into our story, coming to grips with our emotion. I don't know that I would define reckoning exactly like that because then she goes on to this thing called rumble. I know people love this. I think it's just a weird name. I'll talk about that later. But anyway, getting honest about those stories, outing them, and then revolution, which is writing a new ending based on the learnings that you have. So asking questions, being curious, being curious, why am I so hard on others, but also why am I so hard on myself? And this reminded me of this great article I just read. April 21st, New York Times, Adam Grant, languishing. Okay, so first of all, it's a phenomenal word. It's it's like one of those words that's just wonderful to say. Languishing. It brings up so much lovely imagery. But what he's suggesting is that we are having, we're in the middle of a mental health crisis, which we know a pandemic is a problem. We've come off of, you know, several years of, desperate governmental incompetence culminated into a massive pandemic. So his article was languishing is this weird middle space. I kept thinking of that Catholic concept of purgatory, neither heaven nor hell. Awful way to feel, but it's not so awful that people get help. So he describes it as blah, that it's not burnout. You still have energy. It's not depression because you don't feel hopeless. It's joyless and aimless languishing. Stagnation, emptiness, muddling through the days, the absence of well-being, like you have no symptoms of mental illness, but you're not functioning well. And new research on people who aren't depressed, but are also not thriving It's a mental state that may put you at risk for worse because you slip away without noticing. And he actually points out this great concept that somebody tweeted in last year from a Chinese concept, revenge bedtime procrastination, which is where we stay up late at night to reclaim the freedom that we miss during the day. He suggests that maybe it's a quiet defiance of languishing during the day. And what helps, and that's why it kind of works with this Brene Brown stuff, naming it, and getting yourself into flow as much as possible. And flow is when you're doing meaningful transporting activities for a substantial interrupted period of time, something that you love, something you can focus on a small goal, because not bad doesn't mean you're doing great. And not depressed doesn't mean you're not struggling. And the Brene Brown stuff really brought this article back to mind because She talks about badassery and going and getting help. And I just read this thing about take a minute and assess yourself more. And I feel like this is really timely. I read this and felt like that is how I spent last winter. And I didn't have a word for it. And you need to have a word for emotions. If what can be mentioned can be managed. And self-regulation involves being able to identify what it is you're regulating. and. I was like, that is exactly the feeling that I had all winter 2021. And in the end, I decided to go and investigate whether I really had ADHD. Thanks, TikTok, for basically telling me I did. If anyone ever wants to ask me about how TikTok diagnosed my ADHD before anybody else, please contact me through my website. I love to have this discussion. 
And that made me kind of pull out of this. I did reach out for help, although I reached it by sort of an oblique sideways way. But languishing. Anyway, that's out there. I hope I hope it helps. Read it. New York Times online. Actually, all you have to do is look up languishing 2021 and you'll find it. And so Brene Brown has, you know, goes on to this emotion stuff, which is how this comes in. Ignoring emotional pain makes it worse. Ignoring an infection makes it worse. Maybe it'll take care of itself, but maybe it won't. Maybe you'll end up with a raging bone infection. And it will come out somewhere. And in our culture, we have these weird ways that it's kind of allowed to come out. Road rage. Why are you thinking it's okay to channel, to to offload all that emotional pain that's been ignored into a several ton vehicle in a homicidal state? It's not just homicidal in the sense of like you're driving into others, but you're endangering everybody in your own car. You're endangering yourself. And then the other one that I think is really, really, really strange as a phenomenon, and that is sports rage. Wow, is that an accepted method of being emotional at this time in this culture? Also, why? Also, she doesn't even go into it, but the more I thought about it, I was like, not just rage at the other team. By the way, a team you're not even playing, you're watching. Not just that rage, but when teams win, there's this outpouring of celebrational rage, setting things on fire, rioting, flipping cars. And certainly in terms of media, boy, do we treat that different than anybody objecting to, you know, civil rights violations. Can I just say it's weird? Step back and look at it. It's weird and it has a cost. And it results. Ignoring emotional pain in your personal life, offloading it into these socially acceptable ways that are incredibly dangerous and destructive, but it results in shaming others. You end up numbing your own hurt, which hurts others. And then you also stockpile it within your own body. And I talked about the body keeps the score. That's a lot of the underlying piece of that. In order to integrate it, and you do need to integrate it to be healthy. You have to give yourself permission to feel, pay attention to what you're thinking and feeling. She suggests box breathing, which is a four beat slow breath in, hold for four beats, expel the breath for four beats, and then stop, hold your breath at the other end for four beats. And do that for a while. That has been studied and is a calming technique You don't need to be a Zen master. It's awesome. It's actually really great to teach to kids who are often beside themselves with rage and have no power. We're often beside ourselves with rage as adults, but we have power, so we should learn it. But also, it's a good skill to teach kids. And then because shame is her major sort of focus of study, she talks about the stories that where where's the origin of the stories that we tell ourselves that involve shame, the shame of feeling unlovable tends to come from family shame. The shame of feeling sinful, she says divinity, like just the sense of human dignity comes from religion. 
And the shame of being uncreative or unable comes from schools. And tons of stories around all these, and you can read them. They're great. A lot of them you'll find really familiar because you're human. So then she has a few things that she does. She suggests like actually writing the process of writing out short bursts of the story I'm telling myself right now. And that's not a bad discipline to get into daily. I never keep anything up daily, but for periods of time, I'll do things daily. I'll journal daily and then I'll lose it again. And I'm now at the point where I forgive myself for that, knowing I'll pick it up again. But, you know, asking what are my emotions right now? What's my body doing? What am I thinking about? What are my beliefs? What are my actions? And that that is the story you're telling yourself. It's a little more formal than I would. It's kind of, but it's not a bad little meditative thing. And then she has like this idea of rumbling. Yeah. What do I know for sure? What assumptions do I have? What other info do I need? What's underneath my response and what part did I play? And that's when you have sort of relational friction, work, community, interpersonal, anything. I did find that these, and you can use these with teams and everything, and you can use them with yourself. When you're mad at yourself, when you're disappointed in something, these are really great questions. I kind of like the Byron Katie version of the same better, which is, is this true? Do I absolutely know that this is true? How do I feel when I think that this is true? How would I feel if I didn't think this is true? And then how am I thinking about myself in this? Like, yeah, I, I kind of like hers a little bit better. I think they, but you know, whatever works for whatever works. She does use fairly often. Brown uses not okay. Everybody uses this. I got to say, I would be super happy if that just was gone from vocabulary. Okay is one of those words that feels like it kind of diminishes stuff. Okay is not where you want to be. Content is where you want to be. Okay is like the basic, okay is like languishing. And not okay isn't clear what that is at all. My major objection of it is when you're talking to kids about their behavior and you say that's not okay. Come on. Where, where is okay? You could say that's not acceptable. But honestly, using not in front of it undoes whatever meaning it has. So instead of using not okay, that is not okay, find a word that works instead. I'm not comfortable, especially where we're talking about boundaries. You want the language to be very clear. People that want to violate your boundaries do not care what is okay and not okay. They want to argue with you about what is okay and not okay. It's not good language for a boundary. A boundary is. I'm not comfortable having this conversation. I do not care to discuss it. How is someone going to argue that? You do care to discuss it. You are comfortable. I mean, you can walk away. That is not a compelling argument. It's unlikely to trigger something in your past that makes you want to justify your behavior. I would just eliminate it. Not okay. Absolutely. And okay, you know, it's a, it's kind of a, dud word really and we we put it with this meaning where it involves other people agreeing with us that this is acceptable and there's already a fundamental disagreement so we've made it 
Now we're trying to make it you do double, triple, quadruple duty. It's not good for that. Feeds into people pleasing and things like that. And she then starts with all these stories. Oh, she does talk about I love this. You know, shame doesn't make anything better. Not at all. So then people always challenge her like, okay, what about serial killers? Right. So to counter shame, you say you understand more than say you understand everybody's doing their best. It's a generous assumption. It's a charitable assumption. People, when they do what they do, they're doing their best. Believing that will make your life a million times better. It'll give you a clarity on a lot of toxicity in the culture that you don't have to hold that cultural baggage anymore. People are doing the best that they can with the information that they have. And shame does not improve anything. So she gets pushed back all the time with this. Of course, okay, but what about serial killers? Are they doing their best? And the answer is, and she makes short work of it, I love it. Yes, serial killers are doing their best. Criminals are doing their best. But their best is dangerous and it needs consequences and accountability. That's how compassion works. So people pleasing, putting yourself last undoes everything. It makes you make bad decisions and take it out on others. And the powerful feeling that people pleasers have, that you need to avoid conflict at all costs, is an indication that you need to face it and integrate it. But you can also take all the time you need to process what it is you need to do and how you need to do it. So on to rumbling. It's one of her words. It keeps the R's. It's adorable, whatever. She has this in this example. She starts talking about it. It stops me cold every time. I don't understand. Like, I do understand. It just seems too cute. Is there no other word for this? Ponder? Mull over? I guess reflect might be a problem because it involves mirroring and ruminate. It is a perfect word, but it's used in psychology to mean overtaken by psychiatric obsessional thoughts. But maybe muse? I like muse. Musing on it. I don't know. In any case, that led me into, is there any better word? I was really digressive this week. And that led me to the Dictionary of Obscure Feelings, which was created in 2019, and everybody should go look at it. And there was a couple that worked perfectly with this book. Sonder, which is like Norwegian. And it is the realization, maybe the sudden realization, everyone around you has a different story. And they have their own stories. They're doing their best, but deeper than that, how they got to this best. Pero, the feeling that everything you do is wrong. Like the example I love, if you're playing the hot cold game and you never get hotter. Hmm. And then another one I loved was Altschmerz, which is weariness with the same old issues you've always had, the same boring flaws and anxieties that you've been gnawing on for years. That one feels very much like languishing to me. <laughs> like if that's the case, you need to reach out. You need some badassery and you need to reach out and get someone to work with you on it. Uh, a coach, if they're like issues that aren't deeply hurting others or yourself, a therapist, if they are really not getting better. I think therapy, there's overlap. Therapy gives you the real psychological tools. 
and coaching may or may not, and is tends to be like single goal or, or few goal oriented. Anyway, you can work that out. She talks about grief, which is lovely to have someone out that we don't talk about it enough. We don't talk about how to handle it. There's a beautiful C.S. Lewis quote. No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. And struggle does involve grief, even at its most basic. If we're thinking of changing things in our life, there's an element of grief to that. A lot of times, the patterns that we have came out of situations that we're going to have to grieve. And then forgiveness. This gets a little interesting to me because so often forgiveness is demanded. P.S. It can't be. So often it is part of a performance of apology that's not actually a real one. And Brown uses the process that came out of the Truth and Reconciliation Projects from South African Apartheid. It's like the three parts of an apology. I've talked about that before. Sometime I'll talk about it again. But this is its own process. One, tell the story. So if you have been transgressed against, Truth and Reconciliation process involves telling the story Naming the hurt, granting forgiveness as you are able to, and uh, this piece, renewing or releasing the relationship. If you can't get a true apology, the three part, or things are so bad that even with one, you do not want this relationship to continue, this is the kind of process that can release us from the conflict. The idea being that forgiveness can, if you can get to that point, the perpetrator stops taking up free rent in our heads. And of course, self-forgiveness. So then goes into a bunch of examples of compassion and empathy. Again, this is that whole rumbly thing. Sympathy, and I like this, she pulls sympathy out of being confused with empathy. It's another linguistic piece. Sympathy, she says, emerges in the data as a form of disconnection because it allows people to stay at a distance, not conveying me too, but not me, and tends to be a shame trigger. I love that. I love that that is so clear. Giving, but not asking for help and the capacity to receive makes you think that you're a good person, but diminishes your ability to truly care about others. It puts you in a position of privilege. It underlies like not recognizing your own privilege. It's important to ask and receive as well. It's part of the gift of the relationship to others. If everything comes from us, we do it at our own expense and feel like we've become good people as a result, but we've paid a price. That's kind of the stuff. She does a whole big thing in the back about making process into practice. The revolution R, she doesn't do a lot on, but it's making the process into practice. Habits. Things that I call back pocket tools, which is remembering these things to do. And the, and the way that I found to help with remembering, to ask myself, what am I feeling right now? Remembering to sort of interrupt some of these processes. The only way I've been able to do that is when I do interrupt it, I actually interrupt my interruption and say, like, good job. Good. You noticed. Don't you feel better? And try to associate it with good feelings. 
almost like I'm giving myself a little doggy treat because that makes the likelihood that I will remember next time way more likely. And then, you know, goes off into how these things work in different contexts, home, community, work. But one of the things that she talks about very briefly, and I wish she'd done more, is the concept of circle back. And I'm just going to briefly touch on it now. Circling back, which Jen Psaki, the current White House press secretary, has really popularized the concept of circling back to the point where it's kind of become a joke. But then she actually does it. If you don't like that term or it kind of makes you laugh too much or whatever, you can use this other one that I learned a few years ago from an Irish professor of mine, and that is emerging thoughts. I was always taught that at the end of an argument, at the end of a conflict, you have no right to go back and talk about it anymore. Your time to talk about it was at the moment and never again. And while it made me fast on my feet, it was incredibly shaming and made me a poor arguer. It it undermined my ability to negotiate with anything. Personal, professional, it it was a terrible, terrible lesson to learn. You have the right to your emerging thoughts because evolving and having further considerations is part of being a good adult. Use them, claim them, circle back. You have the right. So great read. I like what she says. And she then has this whole key learnings piece, which was different than the book, but still great. Oh, she does give a little plug for her training. Fair enough her business. I mean, do it. It sounds great. And that's Brene Brown. Folksy, accessible, well-rooted in humane leadership. I like her. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, community, and creativity. Next up, we're going to be talking about how to form friendships and keep connections in college and beyond with Jessica Gifford from wellstudent.co. Stay tuned. With me today is Jessica Gifford, who started a business in the middle of the pandemic addressing student mental health and well-being. You can find her at wellstudent.co. Thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, me too. So let's just dive right in. Talk to me a bit about the business that you opened in June in the middle of this pandemic. Sure. So I was actually planning on, um, I was working at Amherst College as the director of their counseling center, um, and I had focused on mental health promotion, which is kind of the preventative aspect of mental health, of, of working to improve student mental health and well-being and the student body as a whole. So definitely, definitely challenging. So I had planned to leave in March and I was sort of like, whoa, (laughs) things look a little different than I had been anticipating. And my uh, supervisor at the counseling center was like, whoa, could you please stay until the end of the semester? So it worked out perfectly. So I launched the beginning of June and I have a few different programs to improve student mental health and well-being, but my main focus is on a program called Project Connect, which is a peer-facilitated program to help students really develop friendships in a, in a meaningful way. 
through structured conversation and activities. And so it, it provides a structure for them to meet and really get to know a small group of students. And the response has been really fantastic. And so it, it started out as an in-person program. And then, you know, when the pandemic hit, I did some quick translation of like, okay, how do we do this over Zoom as well? So there's, there's the, the activities have all been adapted to over Zoom. So, so I've been reaching out to a bunch of different colleges and I'm really excited that as of today, there are 26 colleges, one high school and one middle school that are now implementing the program. And some of them are in person, some of them are over Zoom, but it's been really fun to start to hear feedback from the other campuses about how it's going and that it's kind of perfect for this time when feeling really socially isolated and disconnected and especially for incoming students you know the college experience is not what they had anticipated or hoped it would be even if they are on campus it's hard to to make those connections and friendships. And so this is a really useful tool for that. Okay. So what's been the difference between, for, for the actual participants, when they talk, like, do they get the same value out of the online version? Have you had sort of a comparison? So I would say online is not as awesome as in person. You know, I think there's there's something that is lacking in terms of being able to to read body language and to like interact after the group and um, a little bit less formality. However, you know, Zoom is also what we have right now. And I think, you know, lots of lots of students like everybody else are feeling Zoom fatigue right now, but this feels really different than a classroom because it's it's small it's groups of four to six students they're interacting with each other doing kind of fun you know answering fun questions and doing fun activities getting to know each other and I think that's something that students are really craving and hungry for so even though zoom in many ways is not ideal it's still meeting a really strong need and and on the other side it's also opened up a number of possibilities that weren't there before it went virtual because I, I was sort of like resistant to, to moving it to the virtual world. But it means that it can be used now, for example, before students even get to campus, they could be meeting with five or six students so that when they arrive in their first year, they already know a few people and there's some other friendly faces or it could be used with students who are international or who are studying abroad or other other ways and so I think on the positive side it just opens up a whole a whole world of possibilities that don't exist in person but there is also an element that is is lost as well how how many weeks does it last does it last for the whole semester it lasts for six weeks, and each session is one hour. So initially, um, I started it as as 
four sessions because I know that students are busy. You know, it's really hard to get students to sign up to multi-session things and to make that time commitment. And the feedback was very clear that students wanted more sessions. So we expanded it to five sessions and now we've expanded it to six sessions. So yeah, so six sessions, it is a, a pretty flexible curriculum. So I know some campuses who are doing it over Zoom have, have done some shorter versions, you know, doing a four session version or even doing an introductory, like one or two session version as part of orientation. And then students can sign up for the longer version. So there's a lot of flexibility, but the model is six sessions. And I'm actually working on developing kind of like a phase two because I've heard from from some groups that they really don't want to end at session six and so I'm like that's what I was going to ask you actually that was the next question I was going to ask you is what about going on from these like it I don't know it's one thing to be sort of like and we bonded bye Yes, exactly. So there are some groups that are like, we're not ready to end, so we're just going to keep meeting. But I think for for some people, it's like, okay, we want to keep meeting, but it's hard to do that without a structure in place. Like, okay, now we're together, but what are we doing together? Yeah. Um, and, you know, so so that's why I do want to create a phase two curriculum for groups that are wanting to continue to meet together but aren't quite feeling like they're at the point where they can just like meet together informally or create their own activities. It's interesting. I'm thinking about how the experience I had last spring was with, uh, I had in my household three graduating seniors and they were (laughs) bereft. Like they were in so much distress. And even as you say it, I think, you know, maybe post-pandemic, I'm wondering if there is a space to do this for alumni. I mean, I don't know what their business would be almost. It's almost like they need a project too. But boy, I mean, it always is weird after you leave college and all your friends have just scattered to the winds and no real connection with... And and actually, that was going to be the next piece I asked you about. So I'll combine it, which is... Uh, a massive problem that young people have, <laughs> I say young, yeah. everybody has, is keeping friends in adulthood. Yes. <laughs> That's yes. a big space. Yeah, so I, I, I want to I wanna go kind of go back to the, the senior thing yeah. before moving on to your question. Just, I think it was really challenging because it happened so fast that students didn't really even have the opportunity to make proper goodbyes. Oh, yeah. And yeah, like missing out on those kind of rituals of transition is is really a loss. So definitely tough thing. And yeah, loneliness. So so I came at this from the mental health perspective, not surprisingly, because that's my field. And the research is that that loneliness is super detrimental both to physical and mental and emotional health. And that it affects all generations. But even though we kind of think of it maybe a problem among the elderly being being isolated that actually each progressive younger generation reports higher levels of loneliness mm. so so boomers are kind of higher than gen x millennials are higher than wait yeah, yeah. Kind of order, but yeah <laughs> each, each one is is higher 
And so the youngest generation, now we're, now we're into Gen Z, uh, have really high levels of, of loneliness and just kind of report, I think, difficulty making those more meaningful, deeper social connections. So people might have more acquaintances and people that they're friendly with or more connections on social media, but fewer people that they feel really close to or that they can kind of like express what's really going on in their lives. So that's, you know, that's concerning, you know, for, for all of us to not have people to be able to turn to for support or just to talk about what's, what's happening in our lives with. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a health risk for everybody as well. Like it's also sad, but it's also a health risk. (laughs) Yes. And obviously the pandemic has made it significantly worse, but pre-pandemic, there was really interesting research coming out equating chronic loneliness with um, the health impact of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So it's like it, it, it shortens lifespan, it increases risk for, you know, just about every, every disease. And so I think that helps to quantify it and to help people recognize like, oh, this isn't just, it's not just fun to have friends. It's actually like a biological need to have social connections. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things is this sort of well, there's a, ma- a lot of massive changes going on and organizing ourselves hasn't really caught up with it somehow. You know, I always think it w- wasn't their famous book about like the lo- loss of the bowling league. Oh, bowling yeah, alone. That's yeah. It, bowling alone. Yeah. That was kind of the first work. I think that was in the eighties, Robert Putnam, I believe. Uh, yeah. And that was kind of the first big piece of work that drew attention to this. And it was, it was like, you know, loss of, bowling leagues, just fewer, less involvement in political organizations, in churches, you know, in all of those communities as people were more likely to even, you know, get their entertainment at home, watching TV or watching Netflix instead of going out to the movies. So yeah, it was, it's, it's interesting. And um, how did you get into this? How'd you get into this work? So I got into this, in terms of the focus on social connection, I got into that at Amherst College. I was working on a suicide prevention grant. And so I was really looking at like, what are the, what are the factors that help prevent suicide? And social connection is the single most important protective factor for suicide wow. and risk. Wow. So that's kind of how I got into that. Is, uh, then I was like, okay, so how do we build social connection? Um, and there were some there were some failed attempts at <laughs> ways to help students build social connection before I landed on this one. I think this really works because it's it's peer facilitated. It feels very student driven. It's not academic. You know, it's 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 really meeting a need, um, and it doesn't feel awkward and uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the other initiatives that Amherst College tried, I can't remember what it was called, but it was it was something around helping students in the dining hall like have a place to sit and like converse with each other. So it was something like, you know, if you have a 
a, a mug of a certain color, it means that you're open to a stranger coming and sitting with you and having a conversation. And we'd heard about that from another campus yeah. that it had worked really well at, and we tried it, and it just, it just that failed. Another cup of tea, another mug of tea. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if it just felt a little bit awkward or or what but but yeah I was really kind of happy to to land on this idea and you know it's it's evolved over time as well but I definitely came at it from the perspective of um building connection as a protective factor for for suicide and for all kinds of mental health concerns yeah yeah and yeah I guess that's almost the reason why it feels like these kinds of resources should be available to people from then on like you know it's like you have a solution and then you know yeah what do you do afterwards I don't know (laughs) so some students you know some students at Amherst went to one group and then you know they did their six sessions and then they joined a new group in the next semester and met another you know oh yeah another five or six students so that's a possibility but I I do think extending it could also be really helpful for for some people who are looking to continue ongoing connections and it does kind of help students transition from highly structured to more informal spending time together in the hopes that then they'll just kind of initiate that ongoing contact with each other. But I also, you know, I like to read a lot of sort of research type uh, positive psychology, health and wellness, all that kind of stuff. And um, I've read some stuff about the blue zones. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but the blue zones are maybe six or seven geographical areas on the planet where there is a disproportionate number of people who live past 100 Oh, okay. I didn't know they were called that. How cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not quite sure why they're called the blue zones, actually. But anyway, they're called the blue zones. And so there's this research of like, okay, what are the what are the factors that are enabling people to live much longer and also to have sort of a higher quality of, of life in their elder years so they're they're not just living longer but they're very active in their 90s and and past 100 and one of the factors is social connection and community and in particular in uh, one of the blue zones is okinawa japan yeah and they have something called moai i think i may be pronouncing it wrong but as young children they're grouped into these um, same gender groups of five or six people that they meet with, you know, like on a pretty much daily basis for their entire lives. Wow. And so they have this, like, just built in very close support system. And so, you know, that's been something I've been thinking about, like, how do we create that at a younger age in you know, in middle schools or something so that students have these groups of peers that they develop some some safety with and connection to, you know, and how could that impact their well-being as they're 
going through each grade and getting older? Could it protect against bullying and you know substance use and all of those other all of those other things? So so it's an idea I'm I'm playing with in terms of extending this to younger groups. Well, yeah, conceptually, it's such an interesting problem, I guess, or or puzzle like. School keeps you immersed with this bunch of people and you make friends in it. And then it yeah. ends. Then you go to a yeah. different school or God forbid you go to a ton of schools as a kid and you do that over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And it really just teaches you these things are temporary. And then you go to work. But, you know, I have made lots of friends at work. I've kept very few friends from work. Mm. <laughs> uh, it's been the things that aren't work, but still are some kind of shared goal that I think I've kept, made, kept and made the most friends from. You and I, for example, met at Toastmasters and then yeah. met at other things as well. And it, and I'm not sure whether that is just speaks to my own sort of need to make everything into some kind of work, but then you can't be fired from something that's social like Toastmasters. You can't be fired for something that's sort of voluntary that you go to yeah. in search of these things. And it we don't, we almost don't even have the language for that segment of activities mm-hmm. that, that won't kick you out for some reason. I mean, sports kind of does it as long as you don't get injured. And then sports fandom kind of does, but it's hyper-focused on the performers and not on each other. It's just kind of interesting. Yeah. And a lot of, a lot of group activities you know, that we that we belong to, like, many workplaces, like being in a classroom, you're with a lot of people, but you're not necessarily interacting with them in a personal way. So it's not necessarily in a way where you actually get to know each other and build relationships. And I think on college campuses, that's a frustration of there's tons of activities, they're around people all the time, but they're not actually like, interacting in a meaningful way there are fewer structures for that and so workplaces I think that happens a little bit more informally often like outside of the structured you know meetings or tasks or you know can happen just by proximity of being in the same place and having conversations and kind of bringing in that personal life aspect of things yeah yeah, but teams, you know, like teams, people can form really tight bonds, but it's also, I, I think the shared goal or shared value, shared mission, that's really important for bringing people together, but then also having the opportunity of like, okay, you're together, now how do you actually like get to know each other as human beings, not as this task or this role that you're performing? Yeah, and formalizing that seems kind of cool. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) It's been really fun for me. And I, you know, I'm, I identify as an introvert. And so this is something that I would have really liked in high school and college that at pretty much every job I have been at just as a way to kind of help transition and integrate. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because even as you talk, I keep thinking about Stacey Abrams. And all of her work to do Georgia voting, but mostly she says she's doing community organizing and community building. Yeah. 
And that's almost that second step. Again, though, it's got the shared goal. It's got like this whole, like, let's get these people, you know, foster their way into office. But it is an interesting, I don't know, lack, vacuum. I, I can't even think of some of the language around it. And it's funny because my sense is people talk about this like it's lost. And mm. then it makes me wonder whether it was ever really there, except maybe in the most villagey of villages, which all have their problems as well. The pressure of the village is as, yeah. you know, is as mm, restrictive as the support of the village is healthy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some really tight communities provide that support for people who really kind of fit within their values and boundaries, but then can be extremely alienating for people who aren't kind of like following the rules. Yeah. I mean, it, that's, that's how cults work. I was actually yeah. thinking of that earlier yeah. when you were talking about belonging and I was thinking, I actually think that that is a major piece of the sort of, political spooling out right now is is the people that if you sometimes read what they're writing on social media they're just so relieved to belong to something the fact that it's nuts yeah. is not yeah the main thing it's the sense right. of you know being part of something belonging to something yeah i mean i think that is the definitely the appeal of of cults yeah. <laughs> that it, sex people in who are feeling that extreme need and hunger and craving to to belong and to to have connection and to have like a whole set of morals and values and rules to fit into yeah yeah but oh, there well, were other ways there are other there, ways outside there, there, of cults. definitely other ways outside of cults well, to that's, that's the thing i was thinking is the lack you know kind of the vacuum and, and filling that vacuum of ways to do it although you did briefly touch on this before, and, and I can see that that sense of nostalgia for, mm. you know, the fact that churches did a lot of this. Again, for yeah. better or worse, but yeah. did a lot of this. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, churches, you know, you, you went to cults. I was thinking, like, <laughs> Amish community or other, you know, other Mormons, other, like, religious and cultural communities. But small villages as well can, can have that. But, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it does exist in places, and people also create their own communities. You know, I think queer community can... Yeah. can be very strong in, in some places or communities, you know, on campuses like communities of color, you know, places where, where people are coming together around a shared identity or shared values, a shared mission, you know, if people yeah. are working together on a political goal or something, I think that can really bring people close together. So I think it exists in pockets, but there are fewer, maybe like, overarching structures that that promote that yeah and you know the existing groups don't fit everyone's well ideology and and identities and so to have a a sort of a more broad open way to do that is helpful and to and to work on like building empathy so it's not about you can belong to this group you know it's not about sort of inside inside outside like you're in or you're or you're not in it's about like 
bringing people together to connect as whoever they are. Well, you bring up actually the the first thing I thought about when you were talking about those is fraternities and sororities seem to do it. People stay in connection with those people straight on through. It's very Mm -hmm. interesting to me. So yeah, I was reading another uh, another study about hazing rituals, mm. and not just hazing, but also like cultural rites of passage. And it was kind of saying that the more extreme that rite is, the more tightly bonded that group tends to be, Yikes. which is kind of a challenging thing to to grapple with because obviously, you know, there's a lot of both physical and emotional risk to, to hazing rituals, but, you know, thinking of other ways to recreate rites of passage that are not shaming, humiliating, and dangerous. Well, it does make me wonder. That bond. That would be a really interesting study would be to look at members of fraternities and sororities. Sororities don't tend to haze, I I believe. It's not so deep in the culture, but it would be interesting to see whether the bonding has lessened for those places, for those organizations that just don't and haven't for a long time. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that would Mm. be that. Be a neat study. Dissertation somebody, for someone. Yeah, somebody out there, go do it. <laughs> I want to thank Jessica Gifford for talking with me today. Tune in next week for the second half of our conversation. In the meantime, go to our website, working9tothrive.com with the number nine for links, past episodes, or just to connect.